welcome that uh, Patrick gave earlier. It's nice to see people here. And uh, for those who are new and visiting, a special warm welcome to you. Can I get you to turn with me, please, to Genesis 24? Genesis 24, it's on page 20. I need to warn you that we, well, I think you realize it's a long passage today. Uh, that's reflected in the sermon as well, so I need to warn you beforehand. If you're getting tired and if you want to, then you can stop me halfway and have a stretch or something like that, okay? Um, uh, there is an outline on which you received as you came in. Um, so I want to wave that in the air so that people can see what that is. Okay, thank you. All right. Inside there, there is a... Oh, James has got a blank one. Sorry about that, James. Uh, um, there's an outline of uh, where we're going. Right, how about I uh, lead us in prayer and we begin. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the wonderful mercies that you have granted us in Christ. And we thank you for, for the richness of the relationship we have with him. And our Father, we, uh, we pray that as we uh, look at your word now, uh, your spirit who gave us that word would be working in our hearts, um, that we would uh, appreciate um, what you have done for us in Christ and respond to him rightly, uh, give our hearts, our lives, our all, uh, to love and follow him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. One of the first questions I ask people when they come for pre-marriage counselling with me is how they came to be together. Uh, and it's great to hear stories of how couples met each other, how love blossomed, and how they decided to get married. Uh, all of us who are married will have a story to tell about how we found our marriage partner. And you know, every story is different. There are some people who are single who are looking for a marriage partner. And not everyone, by any stretch. Uh, there are some people who are perfectly happy being single and would like to remain that way, thank you very much. Uh, but many are. Who shall I marry? How am I going to find him or her? Well, if that's a question for you, I suggest you download the talks from Smackago. All right, they're on our website. Really good talk about marriage and, and how to find a marriage partner. Uh, very helpful because they gave us general principles. Now, the passage that we're looking at today doesn't give us general principles to look for in a marriage partner. What it does do is tell us about how one couple got together. And a very important couple at that. We see some general principles here from other scriptures applied, but the passage in this is, is, at least initially, not giving us instructions about how to do it. Well, the chapter, sorry, the couple that get together by the end of the chapter are, of course, Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is the son of Abraham, who lived 4,000 years ago. And Abraham was a very special man. Many years beforehand, God had called Abraham to leave his home and his family, his country, and move to a new land that God would show him. And Abraham did that. He uprooted himself, went to the strange place, the land of Canaan, because God had promised Abraham he would give him many descendants, that the descendants would inherit the land of Canaan, he would give the land to the descendants, and God would bless Abraham, and through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Last week, we saw how Abraham got a piece of that land in the promised land, a little deposit of what was going to come. The rest his descendants would receive 400 years later. Verse 1 in our passage today tells us that the Lord blessed Abraham in all things. 
a foretaste of the greater blessing to come to all the world through his descendant. And we know already from the, from the text that Abraham had one son who was born as a result of God's promise. The first step in God's plan to give Abraham many descendants through Isaac. So Isaac's life and successful reproduction would be crucial to God's plan of having many descendants through Abraham, them getting the land, and then being a blessing to everyone. So this is a very important marriage, isn't it? Abraham had lived to a ripe old age. He wasn't actually about to die, but he had a bucket list. You, you know what a bucket list is? Yeah? Okay. Bucket list is a list of things you want to do before you kick the bucket. All right? Now, Abraham had only one thing left on his bucket list. He needed to get a wife for his son Isaac. That was part of his responsibility. He needed to do his part in making sure the promises of God came to fruition. Now, this is very different from when he helped God keep his promise years ago by getting Hagar pregnant, that Hagar was his wife's servant girl. Right? That was an action that was wrong. It sprang from lack of trust in God. He was trying to help, but it didn't help. This is different. This action is right. It springs from trust in God, and as we look on, we'll see that it is governed and guided by God's promises. He will send his servant to get a wife for Isaac. Because, you see, trusting God's promises doesn't necessarily mean being passive about it. Sometimes people think that if we're actively doing something rather than just responding to the situation around us, then we're not trusting God. That's not the case. Abraham was doing his part in the full assurance that God was doing his part. And because Abraham knew that God was doing his part, he was confident confident enough not to compromise on right and wrong when it came to his part. So he played his part in choosing a wife for Isaac, a very active part. He wasn't expecting her to drop out of the sky, but he was very careful about who he chose and the conditions he would be placing on the marriage. So, Abraham took his senior servant, right-hand man, and put him in charge of this mission. And he gave him two conditions in finding a wife for Isaac. first condition is in verses 2 to 4. He says, at the end of verse 2, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites of whom I dwell, but will go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. See, there were some people who were going to be off-limits as far as Isaac's marriage was to be. Isaac's wife could not be a Canaanite. The Canaanites were the people who lived in the land where, where Abraham was. And this was the land that God had promised to his descendants. And God had promised that when the Canaanites' wickedness was bad enough to justify it, God would punish them and kick them out of the land and give the land to Abraham's descendants. But what if Abraham's descendants and the Canaanites got mixed? What if Abraham's son Isaac married a Canaanite? And then his son married a Canaanite, and then Abraham's family got absorbed into the Canaanites. Well, the people who were going to be destroyed and replaced with Abraham's descendants would be just mixed up with Abraham's descendants. That, that wouldn't work, would it? So Abraham knew God's plan. He had God's promises. And so he insisted that his son should not marry a Canaanite, but to take a wife for him his own clan. Now, the New Testament gives us the principles that we should follow the example of Abraham when we have the choice. 
don't always have the choice. And we certainly don't have the choice when we're already married. Right? In those situations, we have to trust God that he's working out his purposes for us because, because he is sovereign. But when we can choose, we have to choose a marriage partner who belongs to the Lord. We know God's plan, that we are to become more and more like Christ. We have God's promises. And so, like Abraham, we are to seek to do our part in obedience to him. That was the first condition. No Canaanites. The second condition that Abraham sets is in verse 5 to 8. The servant says to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. May I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham says, Absolutely not. See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But, if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. Whatever happens... Isaac must not leave the land of promise. He must not go back to the place where Abraham came from. Most of you here know uh, Stephen Lee. Stephen is the one who preaches for me when I'm away. Uh, you, you know him? Yeah? Okay. Now, Stephen Lee's parents used to live in Malaysia. In fact, they used to live in Ampang. They moved to Australia before Stephen was born to give a better life to their children. And then Stephen has now moved back here. Right. Now, he's done it for the right reasons. He's done it for the sake of the gospel. He's here to serve the Lord Jesus and to support gospel work in Malaysia. But I'm guessing it must be hard for his parents to understand that. They're not Christians. And what they can see is that their son has left a better country, a better life, in the country they moved to, and gone back to the old country. Abraham doesn't want to see Isaac go back to his old country. But it's not because Canaan is a more prosperous place or the education system is better or, or anything like that. God promised Abraham, in verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. Abraham knew God wanted him to stay in that land. He wanted Isaac to stay in that land. If he went back to the land where he came from, it would be saying this is, this is all a mistake. We're saying that he's lost confidence that God is going to fulfill his promises. And friends, God has promised us an eternal inheritance with him in glory, hasn't he? And we saw some of that last week. And in whatever decisions we make, we've got to make sure that God's promises are central. We don't do things that deny the promises of God, that make it, make it seem like they don't exist or unimportant. We, we live our lives here in light of the future. And never put God's promises in jeopardy by by moving away from the place of promise, the Lord Jesus himself, back into our old land, for our old way of life. Sometimes it's tempting. Especially when it comes to marriage. don't, don't, Don't marry someone who will take you back to the old life before Jesus. Or whatever you do, don't go back to the land from which you came. Sometimes we find it easier for ourselves than, than for our children. We're willing to make sacrifice, limit our options for the sake of the kingdom. But they're a bit more reluctant to do that when it comes to the kids. Because we forget that the best thing for our children is to know God and to love Him and to serve Him and become more like Jesus Himself. So when it comes to the children, 
people who live so differently from the rest of the world think and act just like the world sometimes. But, but Abraham, he has godly priority. Now, now, sometimes, of course, you know, when the kids are growing up, you have no choice, really. That's, you know, fine. But, but talking about when they're not. Abraham had choices here because in his culture he could dictate things for the children. And he had prior, godly priorities for himself and for his son Isaac. And he says, look, if obeying God means Isaac will lose out on the bride because she's not going to come back with him, then let it be. Because he's learned the lesson that God can be trusted with Isaac. Remember, God saved Isaac's life because he had promised him many descendants through Isaac. God would fulfill the promises. Don't doubt about it. Isaac's going to get a wife. God will send an angel, Abraham says in verse 24, to make sure Isaac gets an appropriate wife. No reason to disobey God to help the promises along. So, Abraham's servant made his vow to Abraham. Took ten of his master's camels. It's quite a convoy. Ten camels. Took all kinds of gifts from his master. And headed for Mesopotamia. Specifically, he went to the city where Abraham's brother's family lived. Would have been a long journey. 840 kilometers along the ancient routes, ancient trade routes. 21 days by camel. And when he finally reached there, he went to the well outside the city. It was a place and time where the women of the city would come out to draw water. It says that he made the camels kneel down to rest, not to pray. And he prayed, in verse 12, he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And there's the word steadfast love there. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink and I will water your camels, let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know you have shown steadfast love to my master. Servant's prayer opens and closes with this thing about steadfast love. How can God show steadfast love to Abraham? God will show steadfast love to Abraham, his faithfulness, by showing this servant who Isaac is to marry. Because, remember, Isaac needs a wife for God's promises to be fulfilled. The only way God is able to keep his steadfast love to Abraham, the only way God is going to be able to fulfill his promise to Abraham is through this marriage. And it's not easy to find a wife from Abraham's clan, not from the people of the land, who is willing to do what Abraham did, to leave her home, her father's country, and travel to a new unknown land because of God's promises. God's provision of a woman like that would be part of his steadfast love to Abraham. Now, we are in a slightly different situation in our lives, aren't we? Those people in our congregations who are looking for life partners, that is, a, that is an important thing. But the salvation of the human race doesn't depend on it. God hasn't promised each of us many descendants. And none of our descendants is going to be the saviour of the world. So God's faithfulness to his promise, his steadfast love, does not depend on us finding a spouse. We know that God is loving and faithful because he has already kept his promise to Abraham. 
God gave him many descendants through Isaac, and one of those descendants was the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, the perfect God and perfect man, died on the cross to take away our sins so we can be forgiven, and rose from the dead to show that he really is God's king. And all God's promises were fulfilled in him. And so if we want to know if God is loving and faithful, then we look at Jesus. What Abraham's servant was doing was trusting God's faithfulness as he, as he looked for the next step in terms of God's fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And he would know God is faithful by seeing if he fulfilled the next step in fulfillment of his promises. And those promises are all fulfilled now in Christ. The only next step for us is his return in glory. So Abraham's servant asked God that the girl he randomly approached and asked for a drink and who said, I'll get some for your camels too, would be the one that God appointed for Isaac. It's an unusual prayer in the Bible. But while he was still praying this, lo and behold, a very attractive young virgin named Rebecca appeared on the scene with a jar of water on her shoulder. And it turned out to be Abraham's brother's granddaughter. She went to the spring, filled up a jar, and started to move on when the servant ran up to her and he asked her for a sip. Verse 17, he says, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. Quickly lets down her jar, gives him a drink. And and then just as she's prayed, just as he prayed, she says in the end of verse 19, I will draw water for your camels also, until they have finished drinking. Wow. And she empties a jar into the trough for the camels to drink from, runs to the well and starting drawing more and more water for the camels. Would have been quite a job because we've got ten thirsty camels there. And the man just stands there and watches. Not much of a gentleman, I think. But, but, but the answer to this prayer is amazing. Yet the cat is not in the proverbial bag yet. He, he's still waiting to see if God has prospered him. Rebecca has been astonishingly kind to him and And he, in turn, was going to be amazingly generous to her. And when she'd finished watering the camels, he gave her some gifts. and A gold ring, a nose ring, in fact, weighing half a shekel. Two bracelets weighing weighing ten gold shekels. Uh, If you count up the the golden ounces and work out the gold in today's prices, it comes up to about 13,000 ringgit worth of gold. Not bad for watering camels. But with his gift came a question. In verse 23. Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? The girl's open, hospitable. She says in verse 24, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And we have plenty of straw and fodder and room to spend the night. Now the servant knows that God has indeed sent him to this girl. He was right. He's God's fulfilling, Abraham was right. God, God is fulfilling his promises. He brought, brought him straight to Abraham's clan, straight to the girl. Looks like she's going to be Isaac's wife. God was indeed with him. The angel of the Lord had gone before him, as, as Abraham promised. And his response in verse 26 is to bow his head and prostrate himself before the Lord and say, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, for he has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. Rebecca runs home to tell her mum and family, tells her brother Laban about the man she's met and shows him the gifts, and well, when he sees the gold, he's impressed. Runs back to the spring, gets the man in his entourage, brings him home. When they get home, camels are unharnessed and fed, 
water is provided to Abraham's servant and his men to wash their feet. And they set out a feast for them to eat. And before they can start to eat, the man says, No, I've got something to say, and I'm not going to eat until I've said my piece. So Laban gives the go-ahead. His father Bethuel, who seems to be very passive, maybe he's very old or he's not well, I don't know, but he's there as well. And the servant then tells the whole story from verse 34 all the way to the end of verse 49. It tells the whole story again. Now, I'm not going to read it again for you, okay, because you've just read it. It's the whole story. Actually, just the whole thing from the beginning all the way to the end again of everything that's happened. And then he concludes in verse 49. Now then. If you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, he's been showing how God has shown steadfast love and faithfulness, and now the court is in, now the ball is in their court. If you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or the left so that I can go somewhere else. Well, the family's response is in verse 50. Laban and Bethel answered, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Once again, Abraham's servant stops to worship, bows himself before the Lord, who once again answered his prayers, showed his faithfulness, and then out comes the jury. Silver, gold, expensive clothes for Rebecca, lots of gifts for the family, and then they sit down and eat and drink and celebrate. Abraham's servant and his crew, they spend the night in Rebecca's family home, and the next morning they pack up and they get ready to take Abraham, uh, take Rebecca back with them to Abraham, and because, you know, servant's done his job, he's found the wife for Isaac, now he's ready to go. But then the family think, hang on, this is a bit rushed. You know, please, slow down, slow down. Okay? Let the young woman remain with us. Verse 55. Let her remain with us a little while, at least ten days. After that she may go. Now the word, they are literally days or ten. It's not clear whether they mean few days or few years. But either way, Abraham's servant is actually in a hurry. He doesn't want to stay. He says in verse 56, Do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to the master. The servant's actually been quite wise here. Laban, who uh, we will discover later, is a very shrewd and crooked man when it comes to these kind of things. Um, later on in Genesis, he's, he would cheat Jacob and get 14 years of work out of him for the marriage of his daughter. So once he's got the deal, the servant wants to get out of there as quickly as possible. Servant wants to go, family wants him to stay, there's an impasse. So they have an idea. Let's ask Rebecca. <laughs> Funny how they didn't think of it before, isn't it? Alright. Well, they call Rebecca in verse 58 and they say to her, Will you go with this man? The family probably expects her to hesitate. They probably thought she'd want to stay home a little bit longer and say goodbye a little bit more. But what does Rebecca say? She says, I will go. I will go. The time was right. The man was right. God's plan was clear. She was ready. And so Rebecca agrees to leave her family home for the land of promise. She would make that same journey that Abraham made all those years before and join him in the land. 
to be part of his family and to marry his son. Well, the lady had spoken, so there was no more need to negotiate. The family sent Rebecca back with Abraham's servant and his men. They took a nurse who had been looking after her since she was a kid, a contingent of other female servants, and off they went. Saying goodbye in that context was a very serious thing, a very significant thing. Okay? No Air Asia or even transnational buses. Rebecca is going on this big journey. She may not even see her family ever again. So as they farewell her, they pronounce a blessing upon her. Particularly a prophetic blessing, actually. If you look in verse 60, here's what they say. They say, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. Blessing came true, isn't it? Greater when they expected. Rebecca did become tens of thousands. And her greatest offspring, the Lord Jesus, indeed conquered his enemies and became Lord of all. So off they went on their camels, following the servant of Abraham, to marry his son in the promised land. Now, the ending of the story is beautiful. All right. Isaac, Isaac, for some reason, is not with Abraham. He's in the Negev further south, and the servant brings Rebekah to where he is. Uh, we don't know if they went to Abraham first, or they went straight there. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But just, just stick with me with the scene. Right. The scene is, is like something out of a movie. Um, Isaac's out there, welcome. Isaac's out there walking in the field. Our translation says he was meditating, but we don't actually know what that word means. Uh, he's doing something in the field, he's out there in the field, and he looks up and he sees camels coming in a distance. Now at this point you've got to imagine the music playing in the background, right? And the camels are coming, right? Uh, and then Rebecca is on one of those camels and she looks up and she sees Isaac. And their eyes meet. Uh, well, actually, I added that bit about the eyes. Right? But what actually happens, she gets off her camel. She, she confirms with the servants that the, the man she can see is really her fiancé. And then, then she, she puts on her veil and covers herself. You're putting on the veil that covers yourself. That's what you do when you get married. Right? Uh, brides still do that today, don't they? Put the veil on, except the veil is completely see-through nowadays, which completely defeats the purpose of it. Uh, but never mind about that. The servant went ahead to Isaac, gave him the full report of what happened, and Isaac took Rebekah, brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and she became his wife. And then it says, and he loved her. She'd be a comfort to him as he grieved his mother and replaced her in his affections. Well, there's the passage. What are we to do with it? Stop for a moment. Let's stand and stretch. And then we'll come and look at application. Okay? Let's stand and stretch. We're not going to have greeting time again, so I don't go around too much. Right. What do we do? I think we've lost half the congregation now. I shouldn't have done that, should I? Probably not to do that again. Okay. What do we do with this passage? Well, let me tell you what we shouldn't take home from this passage. This passage, we know, is not about how to find a wife. All right? Not how to choose a marriage partner. Because, remember, in the Bible, description is not necessarily prescription. Description is not necessarily prescription. Just because something is described, it doesn't mean we are meant to do it. Now, David got his wife Bathsheba by committing adultery and murder. We are not meant to do that. Emperor, uh, Emperor Xerxes found his wife by sponsoring a huge beauty contest. Don't think that will work for us. 
Paul abstained from marriage so that he could spend more time in gospel ministry. Not necessarily required of us either. Maybe. But description is not necessarily prescription. So this is not necessarily telling us how to find a wife, and it obviously isn't because no one else in the Bible chooses a wife this way. Not Abraham, not David, not Samuel, or anyone. But if you really thought that this was meant to tell you how to do it, well, this is what you should do. Leave it to your father. That's what Isaac did. And if he procrastinates till you're 40 and you're old, then so be it. And one day you'll look for a wife for your son. And if you're looking for a wife for your son, how do you do that? Well, first thing is you send your maid back to your hometown with a convoy of cars. And you get her to wait at the petrol station. And you ask her to pray, the first young lady who comes there for petrol and offers to fill up your car and your convoy's car as well, she'll be the one. This is not a model for guidance about marriage. So then, where do we fit in the story? What should we do? How does it apply to us? Well, this isn't telling us about how to find a wife, but it is a story about marriage, isn't it? And marriage, the New Testament tells us, was created by God to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Right? In Ephesians chapter 5, um, we read, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave him up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water to the word, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything such, that she might be holy and, blem- and without blemish. In fact, it says further down in verse 31, it quotes Genesis about a man leaving his father and mother and clinging to his wife, becoming a one flesh. And he says, look, this is actually about Christ and the church. Marriage, marriage is, is meant to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. That's what it's for. And so the marriage of Jesus is actually the, the most important marriage. Right? So when we say marriage of Jesus, it sounds funny, doesn't it? Right? Because Jesus was single. Um, all his earthly life. But, but the Bible talks about the marriage of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus marrying us. Uh, not individually, right? but together. All together with all God's people all over the world. The, the church, the invisible church. We are God's people. And together we will be married to Jesus. We will enjoy a deep and full and perfect relationship with him forever. And every marriage in this world exists to reflect, to anticipate that final reality. But this marriage between Isaac and Rebekah, we've already worked out, is not an ordinary marriage. It is a special marriage because it is the marriage of the son of promise. Isaac was the son of promise. He is the son that Abraham had been waiting for. He was the son of Abraham. The heir of the promises of God. All the promises of God hung on this marriage. And Jesus, he is the true son of promise. He is the one the whole world needed to wait for. He is the true son of Abraham. The one in whom all the promises are fulfilled. And all the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus' marriage. And so Isaac is someone who points forward to Jesus. And the marriage of Isaac points forward in a special way to the marriage of Jesus. Last week, we looked at our future inheritance. We, we read from Revelation 21. Let me show you those verses again. Oh, no, I'm so sorry they're so small. Uh, we try on this side, okay? I think there's a bit bigger over here. If you, oh, you try and see where you can see. Okay? And notice the, the, the marriage theme coming up. 
I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's who we are. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. That relationship we talked about last week, that relationship, that intimate, personal relationship of perfection that lasts forever, that is a marriage relationship. God's people living with him in the new creation. And so chapter 21 continues at the end. It says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And, what will, and who was she? She was the holy city, the new Jerusalem. That's us. We are the city. We are the bride. We are the people. And so the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah is a pale foreshadowing of our great marriage, which is to come. Now, once we see that, then we can see how we fit into the story today. Because we are a bit like Rebecca, the bride, aren't we? We are part of the church which she prefigured. Like her, we live far away from the land of promises. But one day, we heard the servant of the Lord. God called us through his messengers. We received the gifts of the Lord. Receive his spirit, his word, his forgiveness, his eternal life. We received a promise. A promise of life in the new land with a husband who would love us and lead us. And God has called us to leave everything behind and to belong to his son. And like Rebecca, we said, we will go. Is that true of you? Or are you still hanging around your ancestral home outside the land of promise saying, wait a bit longer, a few more days, a few more months, a few more years? Well, you've heard God's message. Like Rebecca, he's calling you to belong to his son. He will give you a new life in Christ. Jesus will be your husband, part of all, all together. He will be your leader to love you and guide you by, by his word. He will give you the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit and eternal life with God forever. And you will inherit the land, the new creation with him. So don't hang around, my friend. Don't delay. Not ten days, not ten years. Go with the master's servant and meet his son. And when you've done that, then prepare for the great wedding. As Rebecca veiled herself when she went to meet Isaac, then we, we need to be people who have clothed ourselves rightly to meet Jesus. And how do we do that? Revelation 19, our New Testament reading today, talks about that as it looks forward to the future. The next slide. Is it there? Not there. Revelation 19. Sorry, that's my fault. I will read it to you. Revelation 19, verses... 7 to 8. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. How does she make herself ready? Verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. See, some brides obsess about their wedding dress. The brothers and sisters, do good. Obsess about that wedding dress. That's part of our wedding gown. Right? Do good. Because we want to please Jesus, our husband. Finally, while we are like, mostly like Rebecca, we are also a little bit like Abraham's servant, aren't we? Because we stand in a long line of people that God has sent to call his son's bride. People like Paul and Timothy and Carl and others. 
who have been entrusted with the invitation of the Master. Abraham's servant was resourceful and he was prayerful. We need to be that as well. And he kept on getting amazed at how God was answering his prayers. And God answers our prayers too, isn't he? As we seek to deliver the invitation. Because to push the metaphor slightly over its limits, we don't get the bride all at once like Abraham's servant. We get her cell by cell, bit by bit, member by member. As individuals come into the kingdom, into the church, they will make up the bride. Abraham was confident that God would provide a wife for Isaac because of God's promises. And we are confident that God will provide a wife for his son because of those promises too. Abraham promised that God would send his angel with his servants. And Jesus promised to be with us by his spirit as we go and make disciples of all the nations. So friends, this passage is about finding a wife after all, isn't it? It's about getting a bride for Jesus. Go and look for the chosen ones. That is what evangelism is. Invite people to come to the promised land and marry the Son. And do it with full confidence that God will be with us as we do. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for all your promises that have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we can see your steadfast love in him. The way that you've done that. Help us never to, never to doubt your, your steadfast love, your faithfulness to your promises. And help us to rest secure in them. We thank you that you have sent your servants to us. Uh, to invite us to become part of that great city, that great church, that is your bride. Thank you that you have called us to leave our land, to leave our old life behind, to trust your promises, and to marry your son. We thank you for uh, giving us the, uh, giving us your spirit and your gifts. Enable us to do that. Our Father, we pray that if anyone here is still delaying and gathering about that, we pray that you would convict them and that you would enable them to, to go now. And our Father, we, we pray that you help us in our role as your servants. As we seek to find this bride for your son as we seek to tell the world about, about Jesus, about who he is and what he's done, and invite people to be part of that church that marries him. We know that you have, that you have promised that bride and that you will fulfill your promises. And so, Father, we do that with confidence. Help us to do it, Lord. We thank you for each other. We thank you for the fellowship that you've granted us together. Opportunities to encourage each other in that. And to press on in that, Lord. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.